All right, uh, so good morning, New City Fellowship. Uh, if you don't know, you should know. My name is Herman, and I uh, serve as one of the deacons here at New City Fellowship. So if you have any questions, if you're new and you have questions, uh, feel free to come to me or any of the other deacons. We have Moy here, Sebastian, Ivan, um, that can answer any questions for you. So uh, before we get started, uh, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, one day in seven that you give us uh, to rest from our daily labors and our activities. We thank you for your mercy and grace uh, that we find in Christ, our Savior and Lord. Father, we ask this morning that you would open our hearts and minds, enlighten our hearts and minds of understanding to receive uh, the glad tidings of the news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel. Uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Okay, so um, it, about two years ago, there was a movie released on Netflix called uh, Don't Look Up. And this movie has a star-studded cast. And um, in this movie, uh, there's Jonah Hill, uh, Meryl Streep, and Jennifer Lawrence, just to name some of the, some of the cast. And usually, uh, right before movies come out, the, the, the actors have to go on this press run to, um, to promote the movie, right? Uh, so all these actors, you know, they're, they're at different places going, you know, they're conducting their interviews with them, asking them about the movie and such. And um, one of the questions that Jonah Hill uh, keeps getting qu uh, asked is, how was, it, how was your experience working with Meryl Streep? And, um, well, he's, he, every time he would answer, man, Meryl Streep is the GOAT. It was fantastic working, working with her, right? So he, he would pretty much say the same thing every time he was asked that question. At one point, uh, someone asked Meryl Streep how it was to work with Jonah Hill. And uh, so, so she says, well, I mean, it was great working with that young man. Apparently, he got so comfortable with me that he started calling me a goat. And um, <laughs> so Jennifer Lawrence, who was sitting next to her, kind of leans over and says, you do know that that means greatest of all time? She's like, no, I did not know that. <laughs> right? So she was being called a goat. She didn't even know what that meant. Now, these, uh, these GOAT debates um, have actually, they're pretty commonplace in our day and time. Um, whenever you turn on the TV or you're, going, you're on social media, uh, you'll hear sports and political pundits, entertainment pundits, always talking about who's the greatest of all time, right? And um, usually people can't just pick one, so they start making top five, top ten lists of who's the best in the particular field. And, um, I mean, who doesn't like that? I enjoy these type of debates. Who's the top five drummer of all time? Jesse's got to be one, right? <laughs> anyway, so in today's message, uh, we see that these GOAT conversations are not a new 21st century phenomenon. They go all the way back to Jesus and, and his disciples. Now, throughout the Synoptic Gospels, you'll see that this topic over who's the greatest is, is, is it's a continual debate amongst the disciples. They keep having the same debate over and over again. Uh, on one occasion, as Jesus and the disciples are making their way to Capernaum, um, the disciples think they're slick, right? And they're walking a little bit of Jesus, ahead of Jesus, and they're having this goat debate. So when they arrive at their destination, uh, Jesus asks them, what was it that you were discussing on the way? Guess what their answer was? Crickets. Crickets. The Bible says that they kept silent. Why? Why do you think that is? 
<laughs> because it's, it's kind of embarrassing to be talking about who's the best in the kingdom when you have the greatest of all time asking you who's the greatest of all time, right? Now, what's even more outlandish than these debates themselves is the timing of these debates. On one occasion, Jesus begins uh, to tell his disciples about his death and how he's going to be delivered over to the chief priests to be mocked and flogged and, and crucified. Now, instead of showing concern for what's about to happen to Jesus, Luke, in, the, in his gospel, tells us an argument arose among them about who's the greatest. So imagine Jesus telling his disciples, I'm about to get crucified, I'm about to get flogged, and that all the disciples care about is who's the greatest in the kingdom. Now, if that, if that weren't bad, bad enough, on the night that Jesus was betrayed in the upper room after Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper, guess what happens? Again, we're told that another dispute among them arose about who is the greatest of all time. So Jesus had just instituted the Lord's Supper and the disciples are still concerned about who's the greatest in the kingdom. So why are the disciples so obsessed about who's the greatest? Why do we in our day and time argue and fuss about who's the greatest musician or the greatest entertainer or the greatest sports figure in our time? Why do we seem to have these constant debates? Well, I believe that it's because deep down inside of every one of us, we have a deep hunger for significance. We desperately seek the approval and affirmation of others, and we want our lives to count for something. So we want the approval of our boss, we want the approval of our parents, we want the approval of our followers on, on social media. And so in doing so, we pridefully embellish our accomplishments, our talents and gifts, in our feeble attempts to be known as great. Now strikingly, despite all these constant, all this bickering about who's, uh, who's the greatest of all time, Jesus never rebukes the disciples for having these conversations. Jesus, is, Jesus patiently endures with the disciples' foolish debates and every time he uses it as an opportunity to point them to the correct way or the true way of greatness and that is the way of humility. So in response to the disciples question about who's the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus says truly I say to you that unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. So while the disciples are asking about the all-star team Jesus says, let's talk about making the team, all right? Now, what does Jesus mean when he tells the disciples, unless you turn and become like children, you will never uh, enter the kingdom of God? Well, the first thing that Jesus says that, they, that the disciples need to do is they must turn. And turn, biblically speaking, uh, in Greek, that means repentance. You turn away from your prideful, selfish ambitions, and you humble yourself before the, Lord of, before the Lord. Now surely it is true that, God, that only God can change our heart and make it soft and receptive to the gospel, yet it is our solemn responsibility to humble ourselves before the Lord. Like children, we ought to think humbly of our own strength and wisdom and be dependent upon our Heavenly Father for all things. 
repeatedly in the scriptures, we are commanded to humble ourselves and to walk humbly before, the, before our Lord. Author Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Blessing of Humility, says the following, the character trait of humility is the second most frequently tossed trait in the New Testament, second only to love. He goes on to say, I regard these two traits as the fundamental stones of Christian character. All other character traits in one way or another are built upon love and humility. So what are the two marks of a true born-again Christian? Love and humility. And the scripture affirms Bridges' assertion that love and humility are the two marks of a genuine believer. Uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, by this, people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So when the outside world sees us and how we interact with one another and how we love one another, they will see the love of Christ being uh, manifested within his body. So they, they can tell, yes, this is a Christian. That's one of the Christian marks. Now, in uh, the prophet Micah, in the Old Testament, he says, God has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So, so love and humility, two marks of a true born-again Christian. So, the greatest of all time is not a goat, but a lamb, namely the Lamb of God, who is at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling over all nations. Now, in verses 6 through 9, the conversation quickly takes a sharp and sobering turn as Jesus, as Jesus moves, into the, moves the conversation in, in the direction of temptation and sin. Now, commentators are divided as to whether this is a new start of a new pericope or if um, Jesus is continuing to elaborate on what was said in the previous five verses I believe that this is a continuation of what Jesus is saying about the kingdom and what it looks like to be a child in the kingdom of God. Not only is, humili is humility a character trait for a true believer, but our attitude towards sin and how we deal with temptation after we enter the kingdom of God is also a distinguishing mark of a true believer. It's been said that if you don't have a new relationship with sin, you don't have a new relationship with Christ. So because we live in a fallen world full of sin and evil, Jesus says in verse 7, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So in other words, what Jesus is saying here is that because we live in a fallen world, temptations are inevitable, right? We're going to be tempted one way or another because we live in a fallen world. Now, perhaps a better translation, if you use the NAS translation, um, the word for temptation there is stumbling block. So um, I tend to, to um, think that stumbling block would be a, a preferable phrase in this uh, paragraph. So not only will temptations or stumbling blocks come by the world, but Jesus pronounces woe to the person by which these temptations or stumbling blocks come. Now, when we read the Gospels, it's obvious that the scribes and the Pharisees are the stumbling blocks for the people by their insistence upon people keeping the law in their legalistic manner, they became stumbling blocks for those around them. In our time, the unbelieving world becomes stumbling blocks to us 
when they persecute, ridicule, or dissuade us, uh, particularly new Christians who are new to the faith, uh, from servicing uh, Christ or bringing service to Christ. Now, not only can unbelievers be stumbling blocks, but unfortunately, we too as Christians can become stumbling blocks for our own fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. And how do we do this? J.C. Ryle says that we do this indirectly, quote, by living a life inconsistent with our religious profession and by making Christianity loathsome and distasteful by our conduct. So those of us who are seasoned Christians, we need to be mindful of our conduct not only amongst unbelievers, but also amongst the younger believers in the faith. In our, our Theology 101 class, I, I stress all the time, I have this theological fence where the, a lot, uh, Christians fall on either side of a theological fence, right? A theological argument. So we have, for example, we'll have a, a Calvinist and an Armenian or a continuist and a cessationist, right? And wherever you land on these issues, you are not, you are not to talk trash about the people on the other side because this is an in-house debate amongst Christians and we're not to cause division, unnecessary division, simply by your theological stance. Just because you're a cessationist doesn't mean that you talk bad about your brother or sister in Christ who's a continuist. Just because you're a Calvinist doesn't mean that you talk trash or talk badly about your brother who might be an Armenian. This, these are in-house debates and we're, we're not to be stumbling blocks for other Christians who are just learning uh, theology. So Jesus continues in verse 8. <clears throat> and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell of fire. So Jesus is obviously using hyperbole here to make his point about the drastic measures that we are to take with dealing with temptation. Now, unfortunately, throughout church history, not everyone has taken this as hyperbole. They take this literally. And when I get, when I get to heaven, I can't wait to ask Origen, what was he thinking? If you know, you know. If you don't know, ask me after. We have kids, so I don't want to be too, uh, <laughs> uh, too, too graphic. Anyways. So speaking about being drastic, when we read the books of Joshua and Josh, or Joshua and Judges, in uh, the Old Testament, most Christians often cringe and blush, and blush at God's command to drive out the nations that are living in the land of Canaan by killing men, women, and children. We prefer, we prefer a view of God that's tame and cuddly and grandpa-like to the actual God that's revealed in the scriptures. So as a result, Many Christians gloss over these events of God's wrath and judgment and sweep them under the proverbial rug. Now, what was the motive or reasoning behind God's command to destroy these nations the way he did? Well, for starters, God's wrath is a manifestation of his holiness. 
Instead of blushing at God's acts of judgment, we ought to praise him for displaying his attribute of justice and holiness. Second, it was also to fulfill God's covenant promise to Abraham. In uh, Genesis 12, God promises Abraham that he would have countless descendants and that they would inherit a land flowing with milk and honey. So he's keeping his covenant promises um, by going into the promised land. But thirdly, and this is the point that I want to focus on here, is um, God's command to kill men, women, and children um, was a way of removing all possible temptations for the Israelites to fall into idolatry as they entered the promised land. The Canaanites were an idolatrous people and worshipped uh, worshipped many gods and sacrificed uh, to many gods. And God knew that the only way to keep the Israelites from such idolatry was to remove the temptation altogether. So God's ways and means to utterly destroy the nations may seem drastic to us, but in his wisdom, God knows that the only way to ensure the Israelites were free from temptation was to deal with the root of the problem. Now, unfortunately, as you read through the historical books of the Old Testament, you'll see that the Israelites failed to obey God's command to destroy all these nations, and they left some pockets of pagan nations throughout the land, and eventually these nations became stumbling blocks for them, or as the Old Testament calls them, snares. Um, <clears throat> at the moment, at, at home, I'm currently going through uh, the book of Chronicles, and it's interesting to read um, that as one king dies and another one takes his place, the one reoccurring phrase is, King so-and-so did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken down. Right now, if you don't know, if you haven't read that, uh, you might be asking, well, what's the high place? These high places were shrines on literal high places, uh, usually on mountaintops, uh, where pagan nations would worship their gods and idols and, and sacrifice to them. Now these high places were stumbling blocks for the Israelites as they, t as they tempted them to worship false gods. There's only three or four kings that were wise enough to actually tear down these high places whenever they took the throne. So my question to you this morning is, what are the high places that you have erected in your heart? Whether we like to admit it or not, we all have our own pet sins that we refuse to put to death. In another one of his books Jerry Bridges, um, that Jerry Bridges has entitled Respectable Sins, he goes at length about various sins that Christians tend to tolerate in ourselves. Sins such as worldliness, anger, unthankfulness, discontentment, selfishness, anxiety, and sins of the tongue, just to name a few. Now, each one of these sins manifests itself outwardly. However, they all have a root in our heart. The key to gospel-driven transformation is learning to repent of the sin beneath the sin. In other words, the deeply rooted idolatry and unbelief that drives our more visible sins. We need to tear down those high places in our hearts. So let's take, for example, let's take the surface sin of gossip talking about someone behind their backs in a judgmental or destructive way. Why do we gossip? What are we looking for that we should be finding in God? What are some of the common heart idols or high places in our hearts 
that can manifest themselves in the surface sin of gossip? Well, one might be the idol of approval, which says, I want the approval of people that I'm talking to. Another idol is the idol of control. We use gossip as a way of manipulating or controlling others. Another one is the idol of reputation, which says, I want to feel important, so I cut someone else down verbally. Then we have the idol of success. I see someone else succeeding and I'm not, so I'm going to gossip about them. The idol of security. We talk about others to mask our own insecurities or the idol of pleasure. I see someone else enjoying life and I'm not, so I attack them. Then there's the idol of knowledge. We talk about people as our way of showing that we know more. That one hits me right here. <laughs> the idol of recognition. We talk about others to get people to notice us. And we have the idol of respect. That person disrespected me, so I'm going to disrespect them. Now, all these idols are false saviors promoting false gospels. Every one of these things, approval, control, reputation, success, security, pleasure, knowledge, recognition, and respect, is something that we already have in Jesus because of the gospel. But when we're not living in the light of the gospel, we turn to these idols to give us what only Jesus can truly give us. Now, knowing that we're prone to wander because of the constant temptations of the world and others, Jesus again gives us a comforting parable to show the gentleness and faithfulness of our Heavenly Father. He says in verse 12, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went, that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than, more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now that, that right there really comforts my heart. Um, because I know that in my experience, my Christian experience, I was saved at an early age. However, as I grew older into my teens and later teens, um, I progressively just started to wander off the path, the Christian path. And, um, and for 10 years, God let me have my way. I was in living a life of, uh, of debauchery. I was doing things that I shouldn't be doing. I was involved in things that I know I shouldn't be involved in for 10 years, right? And in his faithfulness, God began to draw me back. After 10 years, he gently started to draw me back to the fold. And here I am right now today preaching to you guys. And I'm sure if you've been a Christian for any length of time, that might even be the case for you. It might not be 10 years, but it could be several months several years that you have been gone. You know, you knew your God, you came to a point of salvation in your life, genuine born-again salvation, where you started to take baby steps, right? You started going to church, you started reading your Bible, things of the sort. And for whatever reason, whether it was the temptations of others or the temptations of this world, you just started to drift. And you find yourself in situations where you even question, was I, was I even saved to begin with? But 
if you are one of God's elect people, you will at some point come back to the fold, not because of your own strength, but because God is faithful to bring his elect back to the fold. Um, Our Westminster Confession of Faith states the following, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God often leads his own children for a time, for a time, to manifold temptations and to the corruption of their own hearts. He does this to chastise them for their past sins and to humble them by making them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts. And then, this is where his faithfulness comes in, and then to raise them to a closer, more constant dependence upon himself for their support, to make them more watchful against future occasions for sinning, and to fulfill various other just and holy purposes. So here what the Westminster Divines are telling us is that yes, God will allow us at times to wander off. You want, you want to go into that sinful way? Go ahead. He, he gives us more rope, right? And we go and, and we, uh, we find ourselves again in these situations. Maybe it's a, a relationship that we know we shouldn't be in, right? We, we're, we're desperate to be in, re- in a relationship. We find a quote-unquote good person, a nice guy, a nice girl. You get into a relationship, you find yourself in a mess, and sooner or later, you're on your knees asking God for forgiveness, and what does he do? He brings you back. He forgives you, he brings you back. Maybe, um, I don't know, you, there, there, there's different things that we can go into, right? I don't want to go, into a whole, go through a whole thing, but... If you've gone through an experience similar to that, you know you're here today, you're listening to God's word, you know of God's faithfulness. So praise God that even when he allows us to wander off for a time, he always has our best in mind. Sometimes it's necessary for us to get acquaint, intimately acquainted with our corruption and, sin, and deceitfulness of our hearts so that we can be reminded of what we've been saved from. God will never allow us and not allow us to leave the fold and roll around in the pig pen as he did. God, God will allow us, I should say. God will allow us to leave the fold and roll around in the pig pen as he did with the prodigal son. However, he patiently waits for us to come to our senses and to come running back to him in repentance and faith. And just like the prodigal's father, he not only eagerly awaits our return, but he runs to embrace us with his love. Thank God for his faithfulness. He will never allow his sheep to remain utterly lost. Please join me in prayer.